uh, Turn to Romans chapter 10, please. We're continuing with our studies in Romans. This evening we're looking at a call that proceeds from the mouth and the heart. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through to 17. I'll read them now for you. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who have believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, have a little recap because when I started reading there, It's quite clear from that verse 9, that if thou shalt confess. I'm jumping into something there that's, and we need to know what's gone gone on before, don't we? By way of recap, the Apostle Paul was referring to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 12 to 14, where Moses was speaking about God's law being near. And Moses said to the Israelites, It is not in heaven, referring to the law, it's not in heaven that thou shouldest say who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. And then in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through to 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking as he was moved by God the Holy Spirit, referred to those Old Testament verses which are about the law being very near, and he substituted the law for the Lord Jesus Christ and a righteousness that is by faith in him, in Jesus Look at verses 6 to 8 again. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Can you see that? The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, in the first instance, was speaking about the the word or the law being very near. 
And, and then Paul, as he is moved by the Holy Spirit, speaking um, with divine inspiration, he substitutes the Lord Jesus Christ and the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus. Perfect and unbroken obedience to the law does mean life. All of you here, you live according to the law every single moment, indivisible moment of every day, in perfect obedience to the law, you will have life. Never mind the fact that you come into this world as a natural born sinner, but the fact of the matter is that obedience to the law means life. That is your reward. And the big problem for us concerning the law is that we are hell-deserving sinners and the law knows no mercy whatsoever. Whereas anyone who is trusting in Jesus and his uh, obedience in life and in death is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They having been washed in his blood and they stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, accepted in the beloved. So, we'll, we'll move on to verse 9 now. That is, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. A spiritual truth that is confessed with the mouth is that is one that is received into the heart by divine revelation. You can't separate the two things. If you make a, a confession of divine truth and you really mean it, that really meaning it comes from the heart and that really meaning it has been put in your heart by God himself, that truth. For example, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, Whom say ye that I am? And Peter replied, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That kind of statement, is that a statement that your average person in the street would say? If you ask someone out there who the Christ is, uh, who Jesus is, oh yeah, Jesus, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. The words that Peter confessed with his mouth proceeded from a heart that had been filled with faith by God. That is evident in what Jesus then said after Peter's confession. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, that's Peter, blessed art thou, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Therefore, what Peter confessed was the result of a divine revelation in his heart. In everyday life, a person may well lie or falsely confess to having done something or having not done something, perhaps we've all been there, perhaps we've got the badge, having made some kind of false confession. However, as was the case with Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, and as is the case here in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, a genuine confession of faith proceeds from a deep conviction of truth that has been laid in the heart 
by God. Therefore, looking at chapter 10 and verse 9, a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. Have a look at it there. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord there refers to the divinity of Christ. It can mean nothing else. If you confess that Jesus is God, this is what Paul is getting at there in that verse. If you have that heartfelt, um, if you have that heartfelt belief that Jesus is God in human flesh, that points to a divine revelation in your heart, unto salvation and unto everlasting life. Therefore, looking at chapter 10 and verse 9, a confession of faith in Jesus springs from a heartfelt belief that the sinless man who was nailed to a wooden cross and lifted up to die as the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin is God in human flesh. But it was, and you would also believe that the blood that flowed from the veins of Jesus, from Emmanuel's veins, was the blood of God, divine blood. I say that because even demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what I'm always trying to understand with greater depth when I come to the communion table is how it was that God manifest in the flesh, was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die, bearing away my sins. It's so important that you confess not just Jesus, but the Lord Jesus, that he is God. Not only does Paul speak of confessing the Lord Jesus, he also believes, uh, he also speaks rather of believing in your heart that God have raised him from the dead we see that in verse 9 you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus that Jesus is God and you believe that Jesus rose from the dead that raises the question what is so important about the resurrection of Jesus why is it such a big deal A belief that God have raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is vitally important when it comes to your salvation. In other words, for you it is a matter of eternal life or eternal destruction. Just look back at um, Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. It seems like quite a while now since we looked at that. Romans chapter 4 verse 25, speaking of Jesus who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. It's all there in that verse. Delivered to the cross for our sins, raised again for our justification. As well as being sacrificially put to death, Jesus was raised again for the justification of all he came to save. And therefore, dear Christian, your right standing before God, before a holy and righteous God, is ascribed not only to the sacrificial death of Jesus, but also his resurrection from the dead. 
You can't take that away from the gospel. Taking nothing away from the glorious truth that you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, the incarnate Son of God. You do not stand before God clothed in the righteousness of a dead Jesus. Your acceptance before God is not in a dead Saviour. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen from the dead and he has ascended bodily to heavenly glory. He now sits at the right hand of the throne of God bodily where he ever liveth to make intercession for you, his redeemed. The Apostle Thomas was someone who understood clearly and confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus and crucially he also also believed in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I say that because after the resurrection of Jesus the Lord said to Thomas reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side And be not faithless, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Lovely words from Thomas there. My Lord and my God. That's in John chapter 20, verse 27 and 28. By the grace of God, Thomas finally believed in his heart that Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. And he confessed with his mouth that Jesus is God. However, there are many who have some kind of confession, a confession of sorts, and they have a faith of sorts, but it is not in the, uh, not in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is not a faith unto salvation. For example, as far as the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses are concerned, in their confession, Lord does not refer to the divinity of Jesus. It cannot. In fact, they believe that Jesus is nothing more than a created angel, the archangel Michael. As for what they believe in their hearts, they outrightly reject the bodily bodily resurrection of Jesus. Despite what Jesus said to Thomas, the JWs say, We deny that he was raised in the flesh and challenge any statement to that effect as being unscriptural. And they have that written in their Studies in the Scriptures, Volume 7, page 57. An outright rejection of Jesus being raised bodily, despite what I've just read to you from John chapter 20. That outright rejection of truth reminds reminds me, at any rate, of all those politicians who come out with outrageous statements, outrageous lies, and they present them as facts, despite clear and unequivocal evidence to the contrary. And that's how it is. We, we read it in the Bible, and it is to be believed that Jesus was delivered for our offences Raised again for our justification and as I just showed you, he was raised bodily. It's there to be believed and yet people will insist otherwise. 
Last of all, in verse 9, why does Paul say, thou shalt be saved? Speaking in the future tense, thou shalt be saved. Aren't Christians already saved? If you're a Christian, aren't you already saved? You are. But by saying thou, that is you in the singular. He's not speaking to everyone there. Thou is singular, you singular. And it's speaking about, or rather Paul is addressing each one of you individually there. And he's encouraging each one of you to examine your heart. You are saved, but he's saying, thou shalt be saved, you personally, but examine your heart and consider the following. Do I really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the Son of God, that he is God manifest in the flesh? Do I believe it? Do I really believe that Jesus atoned for my sins and that he rose from the dead? Do I believe that he rose bodily from the dead? Do I believe these things? Is that faith so real that it is audible? That it can be heard? Do I confess with my mouth what I claim to believe in my heart? And that means outside of this little church setting. Do you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? In this community, on this island. Do people know that you are a Christian? Am I really saved? If you really do confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you really do believe that the incarnate Son of God rose from the dead having had your sins laid upon him at the cross you shall be saved. In Luke chapter 12 verses 8 and 9 Jesus said Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. I'll read that first bit again. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Well, who is before the angels of God? Who's Jesus talking about confessing you to? If you confess him before men, Jesus says he will confess you before the angels of God. Well, who's before the angels of God? God is. God is before the angels of God. He will confess, Jesus will confess you to his father if you confess him before men. I hope you can see that the importance of confessing the Lord Jesus. Can you see how important it is? Again, a confession is the proof of a genuine faith. There really is no such a thing as a silent Christian. It doesn't make sense. Let's have a look at verses 10 through to 13. For with the heart man man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon 
the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Psalm 19 and verse 14, David prayed, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. How can you pray that same prayer with every confidence that the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart will be acceptable in God's sight. They will be, if and only if, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believing that he is the eternal Son of God, and with your heart you believe that God have raised him from the dead after he laid down his life as the sacrifice for your sin. In verse 10, Paul said, For with the heart... Man believeth unto righteousness. Therefore, a God-given faith is God's appointed means by which people receive his righteousness and are eternally saved. It's not because you believe that you have the righteousness of God, but it is by faith that you know that you are saved, that you are righteous before God. A God-given faith. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith. It's through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is why the righteousness that saves is not a self-righteousness. Neither is it a righteousness that is received through obedience to the law, as we've already seen. you'll never be declared righteous through obedience to the law. Not your obedience at any rate. Forget not that no one other than Jesus has ever kept the law. It is the righteousness of faith in Jesus, in his obedience, in life and in death that saves you. Secondly, Paul said, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That does not mean that confession is the cause of your salvation. However, it does mean that confession is the fruit of a genuine God-given faith unto salvation. I know we're going round in circles here and it all comes back to the same thing. You're a Christian, do you confess the Lord Jesus? Is it an audible faith? Because what you confess with your mouth is proof of a faith deep within your heart. Putting it another way, if faith is the grace of God by which the righteousness of God is received, then confession proves that the faith is genuine and that the righteousness of God really has been received. Otherwise, how would you ever know? Some kind of nice gooey feeling that you have, that you're saved... God gives us much more than that, than a nice fuzzy feeling. You know you're, you're, you know you're saved without any doubt whatsoever, with full assurance, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Looking at verse 11. If you have a faith in the risen Saviour, a faith that is audible, that is heard, you will not be ashamed 
That is, you will not be disappointed. Many people have a faith of sorts in that they believe that they will go to heaven when they die, but it is not the kind of faith that we have been considering. There's a lot of people out there, and I meet them all the time, people that have some funny ideas about getting to heaven. They talk about heaven, but they never mention God. They'll talk about meeting their friends in heaven. They'll talk about having carrying on from where they left off in this world with whatever pursuits that they enjoyed in this world. Well, they'll continue to enjoy them in heaven. And they never really appreciate that those who are in heaven confess with their mouth that Jesus is God. And they believe in their hearts that God have raised him from the dead. And all who die without that kind of faith, they shall be ashamed. They will be ashamed of the empty hope that they had. The whosoever of verse 11 refers to Gentiles as well as to Jews. Paul had no need to quote Old Testament scriptures, but he did all the same. For the sake of the Jews who struggled with the apostolic teaching in the New Testament, teaching that Gentiles are also saved by faith. This is something that the Jews struggled with back then and even to this day. And so what Paul was doing, not that he needed to, he kept on quoting the Old Testament scriptures for the sake of the Jews. In verse 12, by saying, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, Paul is emphasising that the riches of God's salvation grace are to all who call upon him. Where it is written, the same Lord over all, that would seem to be a reference not simply to God, but more directly to the Lord Jesus. Let's have a look at that again. Leah, look at verse 12 again. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Lord, who is that referring to there? Well, Paul has been talking about confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And I would say that it's not a a general reference to the triune God. That is a reference there to Jesus, who is Lord over all. What does that mean? It's speaking about the sovereignty of Jesus over everything. That he is God and he is God over everything. That he upholds everything. This is Jesus, the God who made all things and without him was not anything made that was made. Yeah? And that same Jesus was delivered for our offences And raised again for our justification. We're to believe these things. We are to confess these things before men. And Jesus will confess us before the angels of God. He will confess us to God himself, his Father. Also, if you know and remember what Paul has already said in chapter 8 and verse 30 about God calling with an irresistible call not everyone but all whom he has predetermined in eternity 
chosen in eternity to be saved, then you'll appreciate that here in verses 12 and 13, it is the called of God who call upon Jesus and are saved. Again, looking at verse 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. For the same Lord over all, the same sovereign Lord Jesus, is rich unto all that call upon him. And what I'm saying is, if you refer back to chapter 8, you'll know that you will only ever call on the name of the Lord if God has called you with that irresistible call and he has drawn you with loving kindness to his son. Why do I say that? Well, as we've considered already in previous studies, no one born of Adam, born into this world a child of Adam, would of their own um, initiative and their own free will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It takes a work of grace. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and is saved has been called by God, having been chosen by God in eternity. Let's have a look at verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they shall, except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Here we have another one of Paul's chains. Do you remember the chain in chapter 8? It's a lovely chain. The foreknowledge of God. God foreknowing, a pe- foreknowing people, foreknowledge of God, and then what do we have? The predestination. God predestines people, those he has foreknown. The effectual call, justification, and last of all, glorification. That was all in chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. The chain of salvation with five golden links. Foreknowledge, predestination, call, God's call, um, justification, last of all glorification, which hasn't happened yet. That will happen when, on the last day, when Jesus comes again, your soul will be reunited with a glorified body, a redeemed and glorified body. And that is as good as done if you are trusting in Jesus. Uh, The golden chain of salvation... Well, here in these verses that we're looking at now, verses 14 and 15, we have another one of Paul's chains. But it's not in a progressive order. It's the other way round. It goes from end, from the end to the start, if you like. Back to front. Let's have a look at it again in verse 14 and 15, and you'll see what I mean. How shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Let's go back to front now and it might make more sense. First of all, you have the preaching and then you have the hearing. Then you have the believing 
And then you have, um, what do you have next? The call, you believe and then you call on the name of the Lord and then you are saved. Paul is delivering this one back to front. Why would he do that? In these verses you can see that Paul starts with the calling on the name of the Lord and finishes with the preaching of the gospel. That comes first, the preaching of the gospel. Still in verse 15 Paul says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Those words are taken from Isaiah chapter 52 verses 7 through to 9 and they may refer when you look at that in Isaiah they may refer to the good news of deliverance of the Jews from captivity in the first instance deliverance of the Jews freedom from their enemies perhaps you can imagine that the feet the feet rather of the prophets of God who were the bringers of that wonderful news of deliverance their feet would have been dust covered and dirty Nevertheless, those feet belong to the bearers of the uh, to the bearers of the long-awaited news of deliverance, the deliverance of God. So, in that sense, they were beautiful feet of the people who brought that good news of deliverance. Ultimately, the greatest news of all is that which is proclaimed by those who are sent by God to deliver the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and everlasting salvation to all who call on his name. And in that chain that Paul has given there, the back-to-front chain, it starts with the call. Although, when you think about things, that would come last. You'd hear the gospel, you'd believe it, you call on the name of the Lord and you would be saved. But Paul is emphasising that call. You calling on the name of the Lord. Let's have a look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who have believed our report? Earlier it was seen that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As was said that whosoever are both Jews and Gentiles, but by no means all of them. It is only those who hear the gospel, who believe the gospel, and who submit to the gospel, who are saved. Isaiah chapter 53, I read it earlier to you, our first reading, it starts with a question. Who have believed our report? Or who have believed our message? And then Isaiah went on to proclaim the gospel throughout Isaiah 53, having asked that question, who have believed our message? This is the same prophet to whom the Lord said in chapter 6 of Isaiah, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not understand. And keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. This is what Isaiah was to tell the people. Keep listening, but don't understand. Keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. Make the hearts of this people insensitive, their their ears dull and their eyes blind, so that they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. 
With that in mind, when Isaiah said, who have believed our report, he would have known very well that not everyone would have ears to hear. And the message of the gospel would fall on deaf ears. Not everyone would hear and uh, and believe and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Only those who God foreknew and predestined in eternity to be saved. Let's have a look at verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here we have the conclusion of the matter. Saving faith in Jesus comes by hearing the word of God. That is the gospel of Christ, which is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. In the gospel, we read of the righteousness of Jesus. And that takes us all the way back to chapter 1 of this letter. Chapter 1 and verse 17, where Paul says the same thing. He is not ashamed of the gospel, for therein is revealed the righteousness of God. I'll finish by asking you, do you have ears to hear the gospel of Christ? I'm not asking you if you can hear me, but do you have spiritual ears to hear the gospel of Christ? Has God unstopped your ears? Do you have a heartfelt belief that the Son of God loved you and that he gave himself for you? To help you answer those two questions, although not everyone is called to be a pastor or an evangelist, do you confess the Lord Jesus Christ before others? Amen.